We're in the middle of a series taking us through the Gospel of Luke. And something that I uh, was mentioning to our Fort Thomas family uh, in recent weeks is how much I've enjoyed going through uh, Christmas passages when it wasn't Christmas time. I know we're getting closer there, but it's not quite Christmas time. And I love Christmas time. I'm not, it's all over commercialized, all the lights. I love the lights. I love the smells. I love the food. I like it all. Um, but still, when you're looking at Christmas passages surrounded by all of that, I think it can sometimes be distracting. So looking at them in the fall, in the late summer, it's just a neat, different, uh, a different aspect. Pre- presents a different perspective as you look through that. So hopefully you've experienced something similar uh, as well. But just to be clear, uh, just so you know, this does not change the fact that to decorate for Christmas prior to Thanksgiving is sacrilegious. But on that note, please turn in your copy of the scriptures or your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. So you shouldn't state opinion from the pulpit. I didn't state opinion, I stated fact. <laughs> Luke, chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 21, is where we're going to be today. Uh, Luke, chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, this is what the Word of God says. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised... He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when, he wa- when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, till she was 84, she did not depart from the temple Worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be able to come together and worship you today. We're grateful to have another day of life where we get to live and breathe and serve you and hear from your word. And so thank you for the privilege of being able to uh, be called sons and daughters of the king. Thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together and worship with the saints. This morning we call to our minds in particular uh, who the empty seats represent, those who are in our church family but worshiping at home, perhaps with other people, but perhaps all alone. And so, Lord, we pray especially for them, Lord. Would you comfort them? Would you guide them? Would they have a special, uh, tangible, real, felt sense of your presence? And would they be reminded of your love for them today? But for all of us, Lord, would you speak to us through your word that we might be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 21 of the scripture that we just read, it says, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. So let's talk about 
circumcision. You say, whoa, wow, just going to dive right in there, huh, pal? I was like, yeah, that's why we gave you the extra hour of sleep. So <laughs> circumcision is something that uh, God instituted, uh, the practice of circumcision in Genesis 17 with Abraham, but it's also repeated in uh, the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 12 as well, that every male child shall be circumcised when they are eight days old. Why? Well, I would propose at least four reasons. The first is kind of easy. It's because God said so. We could just stop right there, right? But there's other reasons as well. Uh, Similar to the dietary and other sanitary practices and rituals, there's believed to be some health benefits to the practice of circumcision. And so God, in his kindness, in a sense, was looking out for his own. The third reason was it was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what's explained in Genesis 17 and was a mark of Israel's national identity. But perhaps the most important reason was it was a picture, an object lesson, a reminder to the people of God of their need for cleansing from their sinful nature. A reminder to Abraham that he would keep a covenant with his people, but that they're also in need of a greater than Abraham, of a greater than David, of a greater one to come that would ultimately be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it serves as a reminder. And so you say, okay, but he's just a baby. Like, can we wait a little, like, like, is he really going to remember this reminder? He's eight days old. It seems a little young. It seems a little early. But friends, that's exactly the point. It was a reminder that we are born sinners. We're born sinners. A reminder that our sinful nature is passed down from one generation to another through procreation. And that child still needed salvation as was in need of a covenant relationship with God. And so it's actually not unkind, it's actually very kind of the Lord to institute this and to remind parents and children alike of his covenant, of his promise, but also of our very real need of a savior. Psalm 51 says, in sin, my mother conceived me. Psalm 58 and verse 3 says, the wicked go estranged from the womb speaking lies. And so this is a reminder that even though there's so much bad news of our sinful nature, There's good news in that Jesus would provide redemption for all those whom are his. And you say, okay, so there's health benefits. It's a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. I get that. But here's a question. If Jesus wasn't a sinner, why did he need to be circumcised? Right? Like, why does he need this reminder if he wasn't a sinner? He certainly didn't need salvation. He certainly didn't need cleansing. Why did he need that? Well, keep your place in Luke chapter 2 and turn or scroll to Galatians chapter 4. The book of Galatians chapter 4 sheds some light and helps us to better understand why did Jesus need to do this if he himself was not a sinner and not in need of such a reminder. Galatians chapter 4, look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, verse 4, born of woman, born under the what? Under the law, so that he might receive Excuse me, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, Jesus was born under the law. And he imputes, passes on, gives us his righteousness because he kept the law perfectly. And so he was born under the law. And at that time, that's what, that's what believing families did with their children. It was instituted from the very beginning of God's word in Genesis 17, and then repeated throughout generation after generation after generation. And so Jesus was in need of this reminder, but he was need, in need of obeying the law perfectly. And Mary and Joseph did that, and Jesus did that. They didn't obey perfectly, but did everything for him to have him obey the law perfectly, even when he was younger, even when he was a baby. And so since he kept the law perfectly, his perfect record is transferred over to believers like you and like me, and we are declared righteous because Jesus kept the law every jot, every tittle, dotted every I, crossed every T. And therefore, Jesus needed to be circumcised because that was part of the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, so his perfect record becomes our perfect record. That's the beauty of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Uh, Skip down to verse 22. And when the time had come for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, verse 22 says their purification. It's really not their purification. It's Mary's purification. He's just saying it's their time because they were all with him. But Mary needed to be uh, purified. Why? Well, similar to circumcision, a woman's purification after giving birth to a baby was also a reminder of 
her need to be cleansed from sin. She is ceremonially unclean until she performs the ritual she needs to perform. And you might sit there and think, wow, that's really mean. That's really cruel. I mean, here she, all, she gives birth to a baby. She's declared unclean. Maybe the Bible is really mean towards women. Maybe it is anti-woman. Why is the Bible against woman? And I just want to be like, did you not hear me just talk about circumcision? I feel like it's rough all around, you know? So I don't think that it's really hard just for women, but there's a reminder that she needed as well. Uh, first of all, since she was ceremonially unclean, there were a number of things she simply couldn't do, right? She couldn't touch anything holy or sacred. She couldn't go into the temple. So there's a certain level of rest that was inevitable and a rest that she certainly deserved. But more importantly, it was a reminder, again, similar to circumcision for males, that although childbirth is a glorious thing and children are a blessing from the Lord, we read that in Psalm 127 and elsewhere, And the ability to procreate is a kindness extended by God only to men and women as image bearers. We are still sinners. We're still in need of a savior. And so in a sense, it tempers the joy that comes with a new baby with a reminder that the baby needs God. The mother needs God. Everyone needs God. And that's not like a turd in the punch bowl. That's not like, oh, it's so down. It's ruining an otherwise joyful thing. No, it's just reality that we're in need of reminders daily. So as a side note, I'm curious, what reminders do you have in your life to help you remind yourself of your need for the Lord, your identity in Christ, his love for you, your love for him? I mean, Bible reading is certainly important. We talk a lot about that. We want you to have a consistent Bible reading diet in your life. We want you to read how much of it? All of it, right. You say, but I can't read it all day. And that's true, right? Places to go, people to see things to do. So you can't read the Bible 24-7. So I'm just curious, what other ways can you help yourself remember that you are not an end unto yourself? That you need God. It's worth thinking through, right? I uh, was raised as a a Roman Catholic before I became a Christian. And uh, Roman Catholics, you might know, are really into symbols and icons and all this other stuff. Um, But I also know people, I know some Christians who carry a little cross in their pocket. Not because they think it brings them luck or it protects them. They left all that. But every time they're reaching for their keys, every time they're reaching for some change... They just feel they're reminded of something that they otherwise wouldn't have been reminded of at a time when they're not really thinking about the Lord. Why? Because they're reaching for their keys to get into the car. And I don't know if you're, uh, I don't know, I don't typically pray before I reach for my keys. Maybe you do. Lord, I'm reaching my keys. I hope there's not a knife in there in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't, I don't do that. But here's an opportunity when you're not typically thinking about God where all of a sudden there's just a little, little tap, little reminder. Maybe it's a scripture note that you place in the mirror. My mother-in-law, for as long as I can remember, places uh, scripture cards on the windowsill uh, just behind the kitchen sink. She spends a lot of time there, and she'll flip through them as she's going about something mundane, right? Washing dishes. Maybe you put a little verse uh, in the dashboard of your car, preferably not covering an important gauge. Maybe you are... You have an app that texts you something periodically throughout the day, a verse you're working on memorizing, or a verse that would just be helpful for you to be reminded of. I don't know what it is. I'm just saying we would do well to think through, how can I remind myself throughout a normal day when I'm not doing things that are evil, but they're not God-centered, right? I'm pumping gas for crying out loud. I'm sitting at work doing my job. I'm, you know, whatever it is. I wonder if there's a way that we might remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Uh, The Bible, the whole of Scripture, is dominated by a theme that reminds us that we're forgetful people. In need of reminders. You take the Passover, for, for example, right? Celebrating the Lord passing over the homes of his children, not slaying the firstborn among Israel, but only slaying the firstborn in Egypt. That's called, that's what Passover commemorates, right? You'd think that'd be hard to forget. Hey, remember when God didn't kill us? That, that kind of stands out, right? That's, that's a pretty big deal. God's like, yeah, so how about you celebrate that every year? 
I don't think we'll forget. He's like, ah, I'm pretty sure you will. And people do, right? You know how many times throughout the Old Testament it says to remind, remember the Lord has called you out of Egypt. Remember the Lord has rescued you out of Egypt. You think, how, really, are you forgetting this? Let's just get this straight. The Lord brings his people out of slavery. They're backed up against the Red Sea. He opens the sea, causes them to walk through, allows them to walk through on dry land in complete safety. Wait, there's more. Then he closes the sea on the Egyptians. I feel like that's something we'd remember for quite a while. Nope. Tell your children this. Remind them of this. Why? Because we're forgetful people. We're forgetful people. So God, in his kindness, reminds us to remind ourselves and remind each other. And it's the same in the New Testament, right? Baptism, what a glorious picture uh, we had last week as we baptized people at all three of our campuses. The Lord's Supper, as often as you eat of this, you proclaim the Lord's death. Implied, do this kind of often as a reminder, as a celebration. So I would encourage you to try things to put in your life that would remind yourself of the Lord at a time when you may not otherwise be thinking of him. And try things and fail. Just don't fail to try. I, I think I mentioned it one time before that there was a scripture I was trying to memorize. And so I said, I'm going to, once, once an hour, I'm going to write this scripture. I'm going to set my alarm to go off. Once every hour, I'm going to write this scripture out. I threw that phone almost, I, I, that, after like three times, it was just, and, it's, and it's, it's an alarm, right? So it reminds you, it gives you that emotion you feel when you hear your alarm in the morning, which you probably don't want to associate with the word of God because that's when you're questioning if there is a God. Like you're like, oh, I want to wake up and sleep. And, you know, so I, it, was, it was a terrible thing, but I tried something and it didn't work, right? Three hours in, I'm like, goodbye, snooze forever. This is not working, but try things and see what works out for you And work in a reminder in your life that will just remind you of the Lord when you wouldn't otherwise be thinking of him. Back to our text today, Luke chapter 2 and verse 22. It says, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Similar to, but not the same thing, but similar to what we do in baby dedication, right? Presenting the child to the Lord. Dedicating his life, saying, Lord, his life is yours. Do with it what you will. Be glorified through him. Uh, Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, Luke is essentially paraphrasing here. uh, Because if you look in Leviticus 12, that's not exactly what it says. It says that, just not exactly. What he's showing us is that Mary and Joseph were obedient to the law, and therefore, like we said, Jesus was obedient to the law, so he would fulfill it in every way, and we would get his perfect record of perfect obedience. That's great. But we also learned something else about Mary and Joseph, and by extension, Jesus' upbringing, and that was that they were poor. They were poor. Because the practice of a woman uh, bringing a sin offering after she gives birth is outlined again in Leviticus 12, And she was supposed to bring a one-year-old lamb and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. But it literally says, we're not going to look there today, but you can look there on your own time in Leviticus 12. But if she cannot afford a lamb, if she cannot afford a lamb, she's not ruled out. Then she can take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so, since the text says she brought turtle doves and pigeons, she obviously couldn't afford a one-year-old lamb. And that's because Mary and Joseph were poor. So it's a little insight into Jesus' upbringing. Jesus was not brought up in royalty as a king should be, right? When Jesus stepped down from heaven, he stepped way down. Because he's not just living on earth, he's actually living in poverty on earth. And also, it's worth noting that the fact that Mary offers a sin offering means Mary knows that she herself was what? She was a sinner. Because she wouldn't offer a sin offering if she wasn't a sinner, And so that contradicts what's taught within the Catholic religion that Mary was sinless from birth until she dies. That's simply not supported in Scripture. Now we meet Simeon. You say, I don't know anything about Simeon. It's fine. Everything you need to know about him is in the next few verses. He's literally not mentioned again in the Scriptures. What do we know about Simeon? Well, well, we know a lot of things that said he was a righteous man and he was a devout man. But what I want you to do is skip down to verse 29 when we see this song that he sings or what he says, the overflow of his heart. Uh, in Latin, it's called the Nunc Dimittis, which means now you dismiss. You say, where do you get that name from? Right in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant, what? Depart in 
peace. I can be dismissed according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And then he gets a little edgy. That you have prepared in the presence of what? All peoples. Wait, what? Next verse. A light for revelation to the what? Gentiles. Whoa. Wow. Simeon right there in the temple. This would get people's attention. I don't think he's saying this quietly. But he's speaking truth. That this Savior did not just come for a specific group of people, but actually for all peoples. Uh, verse 31, that you have prepared in the... Pre- so this, is, this was not like a last minute, oh, shucks, we'll send them for everyone, why don't we? No, God had on his mind the nations, the tribes, the tongues all over the world to be saved through Jesus Christ. Verse 32, a light for revelations. What does he say first? To the... Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is a pretty, a pretty bold statement on the part of Simeon, but a glorious one. But understand, get it, they're in the temple. Certainly people are hearing. Oh, Mary and Joseph are like, uh, like it, it, it creates an awkward moment. They're saying things, he's saying things that are not commonly said. Verse 33, right? His father and mother, what? Not in an agreement and said, yeah, that's him. That's the boy. No, marveled at what was said about him. Not, not agreed, not disagreed, but just kind of listened in, in, intently, marveling at what was being said. It kind of corroborates with stuff they knew, yet they probably heard something they had forgotten. They've only been a parent of this child for a small time. And so they, they do what you or I would do. They marvel. Then verse 34, Simeon blessed them, a little bit of a backhanded blessing, but it's a blessing, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So he is blessing them with hard truth. Uh, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. Nobody stays neutral when they meet of or hear of Jesus Christ. They either rise or they fall. They rise to salvation because they believe in Jesus or they don't believe and they fall. But Jesus forces everybody to a crossroads. Everybody can choose to believe and be saved or to not believe and suffer the wrath to come. And he's saying this child's been appointed for the fall and rise of many. And then in parenthetical statement, it says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Basically saying, well, basically saying what many even among us know to be true, that one of the most painful things to ever experience on God's green earth is for a parent to bury a child. Add to that watching him die by crucifixion. A sword will pierce through Mary's heart. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Next verse, verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher says Anna's a prophetess. Well, what is that? Well, five times throughout the Old Testament, um, this term is used to describe different people. It's used to describe Miriam in Exodus 15, Deborah in Judges 4, Huldah, it's a great name, Huldah, 2 Kings 22, uh, Isaiah's wife in Isaiah 8, and Noadiah is a false prophetess, but a still described as a prophetess nonetheless in Nehemiah 6. We just finished walking through the book of Acts. Philip's daughters are called prophetesses as well. These are people who spoke the word of God, but not necessarily people who had an ongoing prophetic ministry of talking about the future, like many people claim to have, sadly, today. There's many, you do need to know, there's many false prophets existing today. Do we all know that? We should know that. There's many false prophets existing 
today, and we should be aware of them because false prophets are judged pretty severely. And so prophets don't say, thus saith the Lord, I think. Uh, They say, thus saith the Lord. And when someone says, the Lord told me, uh, it doesn't matter whether they have 5G available to them or not. God always speaks clearly, always has, always will. And when someone claims to have this ongoing prophetic ministry, they just, what do you do? I'm a prophet. Walk around talking about the future, kind of a big deal. I say, bless you before people sneeze. I'm kind of cool. That's not necessarily of God. So there's many instances nowadays of people claiming to have this gift, but it is not this same gift. Never, ever, 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 ever trust someone who claims to be a prophet and says something in contrary to God's word. It's called open theism, right? God was, he had completed his word, but now there's an addendum to it. Uh, Heck no, not at all. So I'm going to get back to my notes. Stop (laughs) preaching against false prophets, but it's really scary One more thing. Towards the end of last year, there was somebody who, maybe you heard about this, towards the end of almost a year ago now, um, a a very popular person and worship leader had a a child die, like we said before, how sad it is to bury a child, and they prophesied. They refused to have a memorial service because they prophesied that God was going to raise the child from the dead. He did not. And so they eventually buried the child. Now that's sad on a number of levels to begin with, right? But someone needs to realize that that person made a situation worse by proclaiming something false, giving false hope. It was not of God because if it was of God, what would have happened? That baby would have risen. And so I'm just telling you that you live in a day and age, especially with so much access to so many different people, And we need to be careful as somebody claims to be a prophet because if they're speaking false prophecies, they are, as Noadiah was, a false prophet or prophetess. Anyway, Anna was advanced in years. She had lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So people assume that Simeon was old because he says, now you may depart in peace. Now I can depart in peace. It's not really in the text that he's old. He's just saying, now you told me that I wasn't going to die until I saw the baby. Now I see the baby. So now obviously I know I'm clearly on borrowed time. I've met, I've met the baby and now I'm going to die. But it doesn't mean that he's going to die like immediately, right? He gives back Jesus. Like, I don't think that's what happened. But people assume that he was advanced in age. Well, with Anna, we know she was. Why? It says she was advanced in years. Lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple. That doesn't mean that she was like constantly 24-7 worshiping, but there was a temple community you could have lived within. She lived within that community. She worshiped with fasting and prayer night and day. She was, she was very regularly praying without ceasing, as even we're told in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. And look at verse 38. Well, look at what, what he says. Luke says, and coming up at that very hour. He doesn't just say, she walked in and she said this. He calls attention. Luke's a historian. He notes the facts he wants you to know. And he says, coming up at that very hour. Like, do you realize the amount of things that were orchestrated for this to take place? Mary and Joseph were there. The Holy Spirit prompts Simeon to walk in. All of a sudden, coming up at that very hour, Anna walks in. This is all an example of God's providence. Him doing extraordinary things through ordinary means. Right? It doesn't say that Anna appeared. It doesn't say that she came in with a bolt of lightning. Do you know what she was doing? Walk it in. You know why? That's what she did. But providentially, this is the time that this had happened. And verse 38 says, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so God was working through ordinary means doing extraordinary things. The title of the sermon is Simeon Says. See what I did? All right, whatever. Simeon says, and we'll take the rest of our time and see what we can learn from Simeon, what he did and what he said. Point number one, your life has been changed by God if you're eager to listen and do what he says. Your life has been changed by God if you're eager to listen and do what he says. Go back to verse 25. There's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was Righteous. Simeon was righteous. Now, lots of times we hear the word righteous 
And different things come to our mind. I want to make sure we're picturing the right thing. Some people picture righteous like this man was, what they really picture is self-righteous. Like he's full of himself. He's excited about how good he's lived his life and all the great choices he's made. That's not what that means. That's self-righteousness. That's not what Jesus likes. That's what he speaks against to the Pharisees, right? And his seven woes, woe to you, woe to you. He's basically saying you're all self-righteous hypocrites. So that's not what righteous means. Some people think that righteous also means he was like pretty close to perfect. Right? He just does all the right things all the time. So he may not be self-righteous, but this guy, I mean, his track record's not perfect, but it's, it's not a distant second. That's not what this means at all. Do you know what this means? When it says Simeon was righteous, it means this. Simeon was saved. He was saved. He was made righteous. He was having faith in a Savior. You look back on the Savior. Simeon was looking forward to the Savior, but everyone's saved through faith by grace. No one's been saved differently. They used to save people differently. But no, not true, false. You're always saved through faith by grace. And Simeon was saved. He had saving faith. When you hear that someone was righteous, you have to remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that there are none that are righteous, right? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. And so when Simeon is righteous, that means he was looking forward to Christ, fully believing that God would send a Savior who would pay for his sins. Romans 4 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Believing God means faith. Having faith means being saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and verse, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's a gift. It's not of yourselves. It's not of works. So no one can boast. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. And so Simeon was righteous. That means he was saved. He had saving faith. He was a believing Jew. And he was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. Looking forward to what God was going to do for his people. But he wasn't only righteous. He was also devout. Uh, Devout means he was careful. He was cautious. He was intentional. He Lived his life in such a way, uh, he walked circumspectly, you might say. So he lived his life in such a way that he was thinking, is there an opportunity to honor the Lord here? How could I be obedient to the Lord here? How can I please God with this? How can I do it with that? He lived his life very intentionally. He was devout, cautious, and careful to obey and honor God so as to lead An exemplary life to the best of his ability, not to be perfect, but because he wanted to honor the Lord and represent him well. He was righteous. He was devout. He was eagerly waiting and eagerly listening for God to tell him what to do. And so that's our first point. Your life has been changed by God if you're eager to listen and do what he says. Now, oftentimes we read the Bible, we see people and think those were different times when God worked in different ways. And if we lived back then and interacted with God the way they did, we'd be so much better off, right? Fire and lightning and smoke and mirrors and angels and all this other stuff. And God talking directly to people in an audible voice. Like you you think, I think if I lived back then, it would be a little easier to obey, but that's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. First of all, the text doesn't reveal how God revealed the truth to Simeon, right? We don't know. It just says that he had revealed it. We don't know if God spoke to him directly or through an angel or another prophet or a carrier pigeon or a singing telegram. We don't know. We just know that God had revealed it to Simeon. But the way he did it is not in the text. All we're told is what we see in verse 25. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, he came in the Spirit into the temple. This was a man who was living out what we read in the book of Galatians. Paul tells us to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. He was walking in the Spirit, very aware of what God wanted him to do. So here we have a man, maybe old, maybe not, it doesn't really matter, who had the Holy Spirit upon him, who had something revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, and who was eagerly waiting to hear what the Word of God said again so he could obey. And I'm telling you that if you are the same as Simeon, if you're righteous, that means if you're saved, if you're a Believer, if you've been born again, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you're devout, doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're trying your best to live a life that is honoring to the Lord, looking for opportunities to obey and please him. And if you're eagerly waiting and eagerly listening, 
And since you can read, if you're eagerly looking, for God to tell you what, you to, what to do so you can do it, that's a sign of a life that has been changed. And you're like, oh, oh it's not as much fun. It'd be so much more fun if God spoke to me audibly. But this is read like I like the Bible, but it's it's reading a book. I'm sure I'd be better off if God spoke to me directly to me, woke me up, spoke to me. How could I not obey if I heard God speak to me through an angel? If I heard the voice of God speak to me Himself, of course I'd obey, and I would say, "You haven't read Jonah." Jonah was told, Pastor Brian mentioned it in Wednesday Word, if you watched it online. Jonah was told by God himself, verbally, in verse 2, go to Nineveh, I have a job for you to do. Verse 3, he went to Tarshish. Like, straight up, the next verse, he went. He didn't think about it, pray about it, kind of wrestled with it, didn't know if it was really God. He was like, no, walk to Tarshish. What happened in Simeon's life, listen, wasn't because of how God spoke to him, but how Simeon listened to God. Simeon's heart was changed. His life was changed. He wanted to hear and obey. And so when God spoke, he listened. When God said, jump, he said, how high? Because his default setting was now changed to, I want to obey my Lord. So the most radical thing in Simeon's life isn't so much that God revealed to him what he did. It's that God saved him. He was righteous. That he lived his life carefully. He was devout. He was waiting for God to act and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And so you and me, if we're saved, righteous, if we are devout, trying our best, if we're eagerly waiting to hear God, to do what he says, if we desire to live a life and walk in obedience, that's a key sign of a life that has been radically changed by God, what about you? What evidence is there in your life that you're like that? Righteous means you're saved. Devout, not perfect, but careful. Eagerly waiting and listening to obey. If you see that in your life, that's great. It's a sign that the Lord is at work in your life. If you don't, that's not so great. What happened to Simeon is special, but in the end, he really is just another believer who believed God at his word and lived accordingly. Eagerly waiting. And so when God called him to action, he went. Simeon was actively listening. There's things you're hearing right now that you're not actively listening for, but if you're, you know, you probably hear something in the room. You probably hear someone turn. You could probably hear a door open. But hopefully you're actively listening to what is being said. If you're not, story of my life as a pastor, the problem is real. But you're actively leaning in, actively listening. Did you ever just get a piece of mail and just kind of skim it? You're not actively reading it. You know, especially in these recent days, I don't know if you're aware, there's like a lot of people out there who want you to vote for them, right? And the mail probably reflects that. So you're like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. You kind of read it, you kind of don't, you, you toss it. You can do the same thing with the Bible, you know. You can, you can kind of skim it. So you could say you did it. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying I don't think that's actively, I'm actively looking for God to tell me something through his word actively. I'm focused. I'm concentrating. I've, I've tried my best to do it. I've, I've thought through this. I'm devout. I'm trying to do it at a time and in a way where I could actively interact with God's word. Does it always work? Nope. Life, kids, work, 2020. There's lots of things that may come your way and distract you, but you, you try. You try. What we see in Simeon is a life that has been changed by God, evidenced by the fact that he was eagerly listening and does what God says. Can that be said of you? 
Point number two, your life has been changed by God when you want to speak of what God has done. Look at Luke 2, beginning in verse 30. For my eyes, Simeon says, have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon has an encounter that causes him to be thankful to God, and he can't help but talk to God about God. Believers can't help but talk to God about God. And then if you look ahead, Anna, what does she do? Uh, Look at verse 38. It says, in coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to who? To all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Believers can't help but talk to others about God. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When your life has been changed by the Lord, you can't help but speak to God about God and to tell others about God. What about you? Do you talk to God about God? That seems a little weird. Well, do you tell him how thankful you are for what he has done and is doing in in your life? Uh, Earlier uh, last week, I had a couple of meetings that I just didn't feel great about going into them. I was like, I'm not sure that I'm a little bit out of my lane. I'm not in my comfort zone. Imagine that, that God would not want me in my com- comfort. Perish the thought, but I wasn't in my comfort zone. I didn't know that I, I didn't know if I could be helpful. I didn't really know what to say. It's not for a lack of trying. It's a little bit for a lack of trying, but it's also just, I didn't, I just didn't feel as prepared. Sometimes you go into a meeting, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm excited to serve. Then other times it's like, oh, I don't, oh, I don't know. I'm sure you have those in your life, work, family, whatever. And I went into those meetings and God really just gave me a lot of grace and some insight that I know I wasn't thinking of beforehand. Like, this is not to, oh, here's what I'll do. It's not part of my plan at all. And I'm not saying it was miraculous. I'm just saying I think I connected the dots well in ways that I wasn't able to do before. Thank you, Lord. It happened in one meeting, then it happened in another meeting. And so the next morning, I think I've mentioned before that I like to journal. Can't always journal, but I like to journal. And so I took up my journal, watch this, this is a big deal, on a non-journal day. God was like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Because I wanted to talk to God about what he had done and take some time. And I was just feverishly writing, just saying, wow, you, you, you really helped me. You gave a lot of grace. You gave me Wisdom that I had no idea of before I woke Thank you. This was you. This was not me. This was you. Thank you for giving this to me. This was totally you. And God's going, I know. Yes, it was. It was all me. I love you. I was there for you. I showed up. Believers can't help but talk to God about God. I got home that night and I told Sarah, I was just like, man. I said, I had... I had two meetings today that I was just kind of not dreading, but just kind of ho-hum about and really didn't think I could be helpful. And, but man, I mean, in the meeting, things just started to make sense and it was clarifying and it was helpful. I said, God was really, really good to me. He gave me a lot of grace. It was so cool to see him work that way. She said, cool. Anyway, this isn't a point about her reaction to my God moment. It's about my God moment. That's a separate issue. Why are you telling Sarah about this? Oh, that's cute. You have a nice marriage. I mean, maybe. Believers can't help but talk to others about God. It was just on my mind. What about you? Do you, do you actively look to talk about God to other people? I'm not saying lay out this whole gospel presentation. Sometimes you have the opportunity to do that. But other times, more times than not, it's just a time when you could just just pivot a conversation just a little bit towards the Lord where it perhaps otherwise wouldn't be going there. Telling somebody about just you're just talking about life and then you put in a but God. You know, but I'm sure grateful that I have love and peace with God. I'm sure grateful that God is in control. I'm standing in line to vote last week. I had someone standing in front of me, and we're all kind of moving our way slowly but surely to get in and to go and cast our vote. 
And we, we're talking about this, that, and the other thing just to pass the time. And the guy says, I'll tell you what, anymore, I just, I just vote for whoever I think. I'm not really a party guy. I just vote for whoever I think is going to do a good job based on what I think. Choice Peter has to make. I could try to dig into that and see why he thinks what he thinks and what is he really believing and see if he's willing to tell me who he's going to vote for. And if it's not who I'm going to vote for, maybe I can try to change his vote. Try to understand his political ideology and why he thinks the way he thinks, what he really believes with his value system. Or I could say, yeah, I, I vote for who I think would be the best candidate as well. But ultimately, I do care about my vote. But, you know, I, I sleep at night because God is in control. Just pivot. And then at that, he, he fell to his knees and cried out. No, no. You know what he did? I'll tell you what he did. He did this. One step closer to the building. That's it. But it's planting, it's just planting a little, a little seed, a little thought. But you didn't tell him about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. No, I know I didn't. I know I didn't. It was, just a, it was just a natural conversation for us to just talk about these things. And I planted a little bit of something that I trust and believe that God will use in his time for his glory and his good. I don't need to be there to see it. I don't need to be there to see it. I plant a seed trusting God will do what he will, and he can use a ton of different people in a lot of different ways to hopefully call this individual to him. Do you pivot, little things, pivot conversations to talk about God in ways that you, and in times you typically wouldn't have. Why? Because you're standing in line to vote. You should be talking to God, but you may not be talking to the people about God. When was the last time you spoke of what God has done in your life? Believers can't help but to speak to God about God. Believers can't help but to speak to people about God. And finally, point number three. Your life has been changed by God. Here it is. When you're ready to die. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And so two things there. He's saying, Lord, you've, you've made good on your word. You've, you've done what you said you were going to do. You said that I was going to live until I got to see this baby. Now I saw this baby. I can depart in peace. But he mentions his salvation, right? He's departing in peace, not just because of seeing the precious Christ child, but because of what that child would one day do for him in dying on the cross and bearing the wrath of God that would have gone to Simeon, but instead went to Jesus. Now, I think this is, again, usually where people infer that Simeon was old, because he talks about the fact that God is now letting him depart in peace. And that's not really in the text, but it's fine. It doesn't really matter. What does matter, though, is what is in the text. Simeon is departing in peace because he has seen salvation. Simeon looks at the baby Jesus, and Simeon is reminded of his own salvation. He knew he wouldn't die until he saw the Savior, and now he has, and he will die in peace. Not because he saw the Savior, but because that baby would purchase salvation for his soul and the souls of all who would believe in him. You know that your life has been changed by God when you're ready to die. And so... It begs the question, are you ready to die? Please understand that's not the same question of, is, are you wanting to die? You know that, right? I do not hear. I'll say it right here. I don't want to die now. You don't want to go to heaven? I do when I have to go. I'm hoping to not go today. There's things I'd like to do things I'd like to accomplish, people I'd like to see, things I'd like to see in my kids. That's Peter's plan. I would like to not die. But I am ready to die. Does that, does that make sense? If God calls me, I'm ready. I'm, there's things I'd like to do and things I'd like to accomplish and prayers I'd like to see answered. But if God has a different plan, I'm ready. And so the question is, are you Ready? perhaps more than any other year, in your face constantly has been the word death. Constantly. But in reality, 
So there's a death rate that has remained the same from the beginning of time all the way to the end. And that death rate is one death per person. You will die. Are you ready? If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you fully believe, you really believe that he has paid the price for your salvation on Calvary's tree. You really believe, really, for real, you believe that the wrath that was going to be poured out on you was poured out on the Savior instead. And therefore, you may not be wanting to die, but you are ready to die because there's no hell to fear because Jesus paid it all on the cross. If you believe that, you are ready to die. And so the question is asked, what about you? Because that's what it really comes down to, right? All this gospel stuff, singing, community groups, it's all well and good. But really, it's all about the end, right? Like, what good is all of this if you don't believe in that? Paul's right. We're above all people most to be pitied if you don't believe in the resurrection. If we're all going to go and become worm food, what's this all about? And so are you ready to die? And if you are, then you have every reason to rejoice and every reason to celebrate even now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Why? Because we're forgetful people, but thanks be to God, he gives us a tangible reminder that we can see, taste, to remember who we are in Christ, what's been promised to us in the gospel, and what was purchased for us on Calvary's tree and promised to us because of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, grateful for you, Christ, grateful for what you accomplished for us on Calvary's cross, grateful because from the foundation of the world, you chose to establish for yourself a people and pour out grace and mercy upon them for your glory. And we do well to say thank you. Uh, Lord, now would you be with us as we reflect upon these things, thinking about Simeon, uh, thinking about the life changes that you brought about in his life for your glory. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to reflect, to remember, to celebrate as we reflect on your word and celebrate the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.